topic is a, um, I guess, uh, an analysis or examination of essentially what it is that is the end goal. Like, what's the end game of, of life for us as Jews, for humanity? Uh, you know, we've talked many, many times about the idea of a grand universal vision that we have had. Thank you so much. Uh, no sugar, no sugar. I want uh, milk or whatever. You do want Thank you. Uh, fine. Um, so we always talk about this, uh, the idea of a grand vision, of a purpose, of progression, of something starting off, of having a beginning and having an end. Um, that has always been the Jewish people's perspective on, on philosophy, big picture philosophy. Um, you know, so we talk about you know, Genesis as the beginning. You know, and the, the idea of a beginning means there has to be a purpose. It means there's a, there was nothing, and then there is something for something. You know, and then it, and and then if it starts, it has to kind of end at some point. Once that something is is, is obtained, so so the question is that we want to deal with today: uh, what is that at the end? Uh, what do we have to look forward to? And specifically, uh, messianic era, uh, resurrection, and world to come. These have um, uh, terms we're familiar with. Maybe we're not sure what the origin is, what the roots of the ideas are, what actually happens on a practical level. What does it mean for us? What can we do? All those questions we're going to try to uh, talk about. Now, in the title, it's a little misleading. I apologize for that little bait and switch there um, because it mentioned that we're going to talk about reincarnation, but I made a decision to not talk about it. Uh, firstly, mo- most importantly, because I couldn't find any sources about it. Uh, and it seems like it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's an issue uh, in philosophy that is not uh, universally agreed upon. Uh, and what we're going to talk about today is essentially the, the core sources and themes in Jewish philosophy about these issues, and this, these are all sourced, and I'm not going to try to uh, pull wool over your eyes or whatever the statement goes to try to, you know, kind of interject things that are not necessarily, you know, rock solid. Uh, so that's that. So we, you know, we have the idea of tikkun olam, and if you were to synthesize or crystallize, boil down the mission of humanity to two words, those would be the words you would choose. And tikkun olam means obviously fixing the world, which implies clearly that we have a broken world. Uh, and we have a broken world, and it's by design. And you look around, and you say, it's broken. Well, it's what's broken. Everything looks good. Everything, you know, my fingers all bend, thank God, and we can all see, thank God, and we all have intelligence, thank God, and, you know, we have, there's enough food for everyone, and there's just miracles everywhere we look. Uh, nature is just replete with miracles, and it's just fantastic. You know, what's broken? Uh, what's broken? And then we, you know, we're, we're, what's the refund policy? You know, why would the Almighty deliver us something which is not perfect? <laughs> Not, which is broken. And of course the answer is that if everything was perfect, then we would play no role. If everything was perfect, then what meaning can we have in life where uh, you know, the idea of accomplishment, of perfecting, of purifying, of changing, well, if nothing needs to be changed, then, you know, then what, 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 it is it, what is it that we can do? How can we affect change and thus have a purpose and meaning in life? Thus, we're delivered an imperfect, an imperfect world with the responsibility as a people, as a Jewish people, as individuals, you know, and essentially as a, as a species, as all of humanity, we have the responsibility to undo that that is broken. Now, what's broken? Everything seems to be fine. Where would you like me to begin? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yes, so I, there are... Um, I, whenever we ask this question, I was like, well, there's poverty, and there's wars, and there's, you know, there's Sickness. illness. It means there's a lot of things that, but most of the things are not even in our control. 
right? Yes, okay, people get sick, but that's in the Almighty's control. Right? That, that, that's not our mission. That cannot be our mission. Well, maybe it could, I guess, if we can do something to contribute towards that. But for us as humans, uh, there's a massive void or a flaw in our life that we need to fulfill, and that is the idea of God. And that is a, a lack that we have, uh, I guess, physiologically as humans, and a lot that the world has. And the fact that we have such a complex and detailed world and just the handiwork of the Almighty, yet there are people out there that deny the existence of the Almighty. They, don't, they, don't, they fail to make that recognition. That possibility is a major flaw, and that needs to be fixed. The one item, the one line item in all of, inf- all of the world's information that is real and true and lasting is the idea of God. Everything else is dependent. That's the only independent item. Everything else is dependent because, by definition, once you accept the idea of God, of the, of the Jewish definition of God, you're saying that there's one power behind everything. Thus, nothing can stand on its own, sand God, aside from God. Right? So God is the only important thing, and yet, yet it's not present. We can't see it. We can't touch it. We can't interact with this idea on a, on a sensory level. You know, and it's an idea, it's even for us, you know, we thank God we do believe in God, right? But how much of our life is dominated by this principle? I would say probably very little. You know, it's not, at least naturally, you know, the way we start off. You know, we don't innately feel that presence at all times. And whatever, wherever in the world God is not present, that part of the world is broken. And essentially, that's the way it started off to begin with. That's the way the world was created, you know. Uh, and the end game, essentially, is the idea of Mashiach. So what's Mashiach? Messiah. Well, Messiah. So what's that? So we think of it as Redeemer. As, as a man, right? Oh, yeah. We think of it as, as a man or an individual uh, who's going to come in on the white horse, more precisely the white donkey, okay, uh, <laughs> uh, and is going to you know, bring salvation and there'll be peace and the lion and the wolf are sitting together. And, right? No, I'm sorry, the, the wolf and the, and the lamb are sitting together and they're just you know, chilling out. Right? And the swords will be beat into plowshares and we shall no more no more. Right, so that, that's what we think of it. Now we find the following statement in the Talmud, and this is, I may have mentioned it before, I don't remember if I did, if I did it was a while back. But it talks about a concept that I'm sure a lot of people have heard, and that's the idea of a 6,000-year world. Mm-hmm. But essentially, we're, we're being given a, a, a block of time wherein that, that's, that's the time space. I mean, this, is, this is all we've got. Now, it's very important when we mention this uh, that the clock starts ticking for this 6,000 years from after the first week of creation. The original Adam uh, and... Obviously, the days that preceded that are not part of the calculation. As an easy way to remember this, if you look on day four, we meet the constellations and the sun. What actually marked a day on day three and day two is a great mystery. If you don't have a sun, well, you don't, what exactly, you know, what, what is the uh, marker of a day? It's, 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 it's a great unanswered question. Uh, but even, even day six, you know, when we meet Adam, uh, Adam in one hour is created, the next hour, uh, Eve is created, the third hour, they, they mate, the fourth hour they have kids, the fifth hour they sin. Like, obviously, to be created and to have a child in the same day is not necessarily working with the same time frame that we usually work with, um, obviously. Um, 
So what that is is a great mystery. We start counting after that first week is over. That's when the plot starts ticking. That's where we're up. And now we're up to 5,775. It's possible that you know, the original creation was who knows how many billions of years ago. We, are, we don't know. It's, it's, it's a, from the Torah's perspective. Um, but in, in no way is it in conflict with, I guess, what science would say now is 13.8 billion years. We, we have no idea. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not a stance that we have because we start counting from Adam and from Adam after that first week. But we find in the Talmud 6,000 years. The world is 6,000 years. Okay? And how does this break down? We have 2,000 years of chaos, of tohu, 2,000 years of Torah, and 2,000 years of Mashiach. Which, by the way, if Mashiach is 2,000 years, clearly it's more than just an individual. It's more like a theme that dominates multiple millennia. Obviously. Um, but we're going to talk about the individual as well. Now, what does this mean? So 6,000 years, well, what happens after, after 6,000 years? And, but what does it mean? 2,000 years of chaos? Well, what do you mean? It's, that's already chaos. So it, it seems like the world was fully functioning. What's chaotic about the world? What, what's this upheaval that is this march, this 2,000 years of chaos? And Torah, 2,000 years of Torah, what does that mean? Well, what's the next 2,000 years? And what does it mean, lastly, the last 2,000 years of Messiah? What does this mean for us? What does it mean a 2,000-year Messiah? I thought Messiah is a guy. So when will it come? So maybe, maybe he'll be 75 years old. Maybe he'll be 22 years old. We don't know, right? We, we, don't, we don't know who this individual is. We'll meet more of his qualifications later. But what does that mean? Um, so this piece of Talmud, if you've heard of the 6,000 years, I'm sure m- some people have, uh, this is found in the Talmud in Sanhedrin, 97a. Uh, and this essentially is outlining for us the, the process of fulfillment of humanity's mission in this world. When I say this world, I mean the world that we're familiar with. We'll talk about the worlds that we're not familiar with a little bit later on and try to familiarize ourselves with them. What it's telling us is that the first 2,000 years is chaos. Right? Chaos in what? Chaos with regards to what? The answer is chaos with regards to the mission. Well, what's that mission? Fixing the world. Well, fixing the world, what's broken in the world? What's lacking about the world? Well, the fact that God is not present. Right? God is not ubiquitous. God is not known to all. That idea is still foreign you know, to most people. And then what happens at the end? In the year 1948, using that same calendar, it's easy number to remember because it's the same year as the foundation, founding of the State of Israel in, in our secular calendar that we use, uh, we meet a fellow by the name of Abraham. Now, Abraham is the one who's going to develop an idea and start preaching it to the masses. He's going to go join the debate club and go from town to town giving lectures and debating people and introducing an idea that was completely foreign at the time. And that's the idea of one God, one power. And to, to, to us, obviously, we're, we're already at the end of the Messiah uh, 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 trimester, so to speak. To us, we can't even imagine what it was like in a world where the idea of, of, of all power is being consolidated in one entity is not known. Because today we're already at the kind of the tail end of the mass dissemination of this idea. But Abraham emerges at a time where that was totally foreign. In fact, 2,000 years ago, so this is relatively recently, the Romans, the Romans would persecute the Jews for being atheists. <coughs> the Romans, according to Deo Cassius, the great Roman historian, they had uh, in excess of 30,000 gods. Right? Every single entity or every single power had, a, had its own deity. 
Uh, thus, there's so many different powers, so many deities. And every, and every nation that they would absorb, they would absorb also their deities. And the Jews come and they have this radical idea that, no, there's only one power. And you know what? This is some, something that you cannot see, you can't touch, you can't interact with on a physical level. It's not bound by the rules of time and space. And boom, mind blown. Like, what does that even mean? These, these are atheists. These people don't believe in God. As recently as 2,000 years ago, like our uh, perspective on theology was uh, you know, totally out there. And, and now today, we look at what, what it's like, and you know, in, in large part uh, due to the, uh, uh, to the Christians and the Muslims, but the idea of, or at least something close to the idea of, what, you know, of, 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 of the Jewish God is kind of well-known. And essentially, that's really the only perspective. Like, you know, if an atheist doesn't believe in God, well, which God does he not believe in? It's not the little statuette that you put in the corner and you genuflect to it uh, every Monday and, Monday and Thursday, right? It's, it's the Jewish God, essentially. You know? If God does exist, everyone agrees that that's the definition. Yes, some people don't believe. Okay, but, but the, just the vernacular is, 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 uh, is rife. You know, everyone knows it. It's, it's widespread. It's, it's totally, uh, it has totally uh, conquered almost all, I would say. But when Abraham emerges, he's, he, he's a radical idea, and he's, uh, he's a reformer, essentially. And he had to face a lot of uh, conflict and a lot of persecution for coming up with these new ideas. Uh, but he was the one who was going to begin the process of undoing this flaw, this lack that the world has. Uh, and obviously, Abraham is just one man. He's a man who starts you know, a family, a small little family, he perhaps is going to uh, become a tribe. It's a family. It's a tribe. Uh, it's a movement, if you will. We know that Abraham uh, really, uh, you know, uh, he went out of his way to try to uh, teach these ideas to everyone. But the idea of chaos, the idea of total lack of awareness of the idea, that's already gone. Once Abraham, the powerful force that he was, his great innovations that he had, and the, the tremendous efforts that he made towards spreading this idea, that ended the chaos. And that transitioned the world into a time, okay, there's partial knowledge of the idea, and now is where Abraham is told, your kids are going to be a nation. Where, essentially, what happens to the mission of humanity is transferred from the individual to the nation. Abraham is told, your kids are chosen... They're going to have the land of Israel. They're going to have the spiritual land because you chose God and you accepted upon yourself this important mission. And your efforts as an individual are going to be expanded right, to a national scale, and that's the Jewish nation. And the idea of chosen people, by the way, were chosen. Uh, we're chosen for, for, for a purpose, not just that, oh, we're better, oh, I'm better, you know, we're cooler, we're better, you know, we're, you know, God likes us more. It's more sophisticated than that, right? We're chosen not randomly, it's not like we won the God lottery, uh, it's, it's, we're chosen because we happen to be descendants of Abraham. And Abraham, on his own, with his own intelligence, with his own capabilities, with his own qualities, he determined that they have God and he stood up for this, uh, for this ideal. Thus, God says, your kids are going to follow along your, uh, in, in your path. And additionally, all the people that join the Jewish nation are going to be part of this mission. And they're going to, uh, they're going to uh, uh, complete what, what you began. Or at least they're going to further develop what you began. 
So the idea, the, 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 the mission is being transformed from an individual, perhaps a family, to a national scale. And that's the idea of Torah. Right? And that's the 2,000 years of Torah, where is the Jewish nation, right, on an insular level, it's just the Jewish nation. They're the ones, guided by the Torah, who as a nation is going to live up to the ideal of God, is going to be, it's going to be uh, the dominating force of their lives, it's going to be what they teach their kids, it's going to be what they value, it's going to be their priority, and this, uh, this, this, just the God idea is going to take uh, on a national uh, level to it. Now, what happens during the last, the last 2,000 years? In order for it to be complete, in order for, to have, for us to have a fixed world completely, we're going to have to have universal knowledge. Is there a question there? I'm oh, sorry. Uh, we're going to have to have universal uh, knowledge of this idea. It's not, it's not enough to say, okay, there's one nation that has the idea of God. It's not uh, you know, that one nation lives by the principles of God. It's one, that's fantastic. But we, and the idea of a light to the nation, we as Jews are going to have to influence the entire world. And the end game, or at least the end game for this 6,000 year period, uh, is where the entire nation, the, the entire, not the entire nation, the entire world is, is familiar with the idea and accepts that idea. We say on Rosh Hashanah, we, Rosh Hashanah is the time where we pray for this. We say that if only everyone knew, every, every creation world that you created him. And every, and, you know, every individual know that, you know that, that, that you exist. And everyone that has a soul will say, the, the Almighty, right? Hashem Yisrael, God, the King, the king of Israel, the, the God of Israel, uh, is a king and, is, and he has total domination, total dominion over all. That's what it looks like at the end. It's not just us, the Jewish people. It's the entire world. Now, Maimonides... We'll be talking about him a lot today. Uh, but he, he asked the question. He says, okay, so you know, we as Jews, we're, you know, we're, we're in charge of this mission. Well, what's the role of Christians and the Muslims? So he says, very interestingly, we kind of hinted it, uh, uh, towards it uh, earlier, their role is to kind of help the Jewish people achieve mass realization of this idea. Uh, and it's actually interesting because we know that the Arabs or the Muslims, they descend from Ishmael. Ishmael was the son of Abraham. So the Abrahamic influence uh, is also affecting the billion or so Muslims who accept the Jewish, the Jewish definition of God uh, at its purest form um, as a true reality. So it's, ironically, you know, we have a lot of altercations with our Muslim cousins now. Uh, and that's actually a relatively new thing, but that's a reality. But their definition of God mirrors ours exactly. The application is a little right, but, uh, but, the, but that, that acceptance, and, that, and to us, that's a certain measure of tikkun olam, of fits in the world, where you have a billion people, an enormous, enormous amount of people that accept this ideal, this one true ideal, as a true reality and live by that, live by that ideal. And that's, once again, continuing Abraham's legacy. And the Christians as well, we know that in Jewish philosophy, the Christians come from Edom, Edom is from Esau, Abraham's grandson. That, that, that became Rome, which eventually became uh, the Byzantine, which is Christian Rome. And they, too, uh, uh, as fulfilling the Abrahamic uh, family's uh, duty, uh, they made great strides in, 
in at least bringing the world at large, their perspective of God, a lot closer to the Jewish or the, the you know the Jewish reality, Abraham's perspective of God. Now, truth be told, the Christian definition of God is not exactly uh, one God. Um, what it is is is, is somewhat of a uh, unclear, or at least not agreed upon, uh, truth. But either way, it's still significantly closer than than paganism. Uh, and the end game. So, what does it look like? I think today we look back in hindsight and we see essentially eighteen you know eighteen hundred years of this two thousand year world, and we see remarkable change in the attitude that people have towards God. It's 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 mind blowing. Like if you know if you were around two thousand years ago and you had to you know project to the future, right, how much of an inroads would the Jewish idea? Uh, of God made in the world, you would say ni- nil, you know, zero, nada, zilch, nothing. Why? Because the Jewish people were a tormented people, very small, and likely going to be uh, expunged from humanity. That that was what you would have predicted. But now, with with the gift of hindsight, we see how this two thousand years has been a remarkable transformation in the world's attitude towards God, and and I, you know, and and that is. Uh, fulfilling this last, uh, this last third of, of, of the world's progress. Uh, is it, is it, is, are we done yet? Obviously not. You know? We would know if we're done yet. Uh, but but we, we, we've made tremendous strides, and we, and we see it, and, and we could already see, we could already see an eye to the future. We, we could project a little bit um, as to what it would look like when this Messiah era comes to a close. Now, that's the point. There's a distinction between the Messiah era, this 2,000-year era of universal dissemination of the idea of God and the individual Messiah. We get the idea, the, the idea of the individual of, of Messiah. Um, I wanted to say one more point here, uh, which I think maybe it might be the most important point that we have had. Uh, and we'll come back to it again as well. Uh, so we see, if we were to say these three groups of 2000, you know, we have Abraham as the great hero of, of, of ending the era of chaos. Uh, he has this tremendous idea that he develops, and he, you know, is very passionate about it and, you know, ushers in a new world. Uh, then we have the idea of Torah, and who, who would be the great hero from the, from the middle 2000 years? Moses. That would be Moses, right? Moses is the one who gives us the Torah. He is at the, at the helm of the leadership when we become a nation. And he guides us towards how we're going to uh, actually act and behave as the nation of, of God. And he obviously gives us the Torah, which is the guidebook. And who would be the great hero of the last 2,000 years? That would be that individual Messiah. Now we're told, very interesting, this is a callback to a previous uh, class that we gave here a few weeks ago. We're told that in three times in, in Jewish writings, we're told about great Jewish leaders that, ro- that, that come on donkeys. Did we mention driving on, riding on donkeys? Uh, we know that Abraham is told that he's, we know that Abraham rides on a donkey, Moses comes to, to, to Egypt on a donkey, and we're told many times that Messiah is an Oni Arochav al Hamor, he is a poor person who rides on a donkey. Now, it could be that it's just a mere coincidence, the uh, transportational methods of great Jewish leaders, it's possible, but then we find in the Talmud that the Talmud says, very interestingly, that the same donkey that Abraham rode 
on his way to the Akedah, to the binding of Isaac, is the same donkey that Moses rode to, uh, to, to Egypt to, to begin the salvation of the Jewish people, and is the same donkey that Messiah rode, will ride uh, at, when the time comes. <laughs> Yeah, well, so let, is, is it possible that there's some donkey somewhere in the world just waiting its time? Know, just, a very old donkey. Yeah, just chewing hay, yeah, you know? I don't know, but it's, it's possible, right? It's it, maybe. I don't know, maybe it's, it's hanging out somewhere, you know? I don't, I don't know. Uh, so what, what does this mean? So, um, you know, Rod mentioned that maybe it means humility. Um, it's a metaphor for something. It's a metaphor for, it's a metaphor for something. So I, I, it's possible. It's really interesting. We know Moses was... a Talmudic uh, reference to uh, Mashiach. Something about uh, one great Chacham says he, he wouldn't be worthy to like, he, like step in the manure of the donkey of the Mashiach. So, uh, it's some, some analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, that, like I said, it's, it's, it, many times when it talks about the donkey of the, right. of the Mashiach. Well, do you remember the other week when you gave a, a, a talk here? We talked about a donkey... And it was the ra- a rabbi. Yes. And he chastised. Yes, yes, that's and the whole body. Sitting atop a donkey. Right. So, right. So, when we talked about that, that's why I want. Yes. Uh, they talked about it was Rabbi Eliezer. He was traveling, and he. Yes. That's right. So that's why I wanted to mention this. But uh, well, if you remember what we said at that time, was that a donkey represents uh, physicality. Like the Hebrew word for donkey is chamor, and the Hebrew word for for physicality is chomer. It's the, same, it's the same root of the word. And in, in Jewish philosophy, a donkey represents the physical or the body uh, more than anything else. And when we're told that these great leaders, they ride on top of a, a donkey, it means that they have dominion. Yes. Oh, they're controlled. They have the reins. You know, they're leading the donkey. They're harnessing the donkey, but they're not burdened by it. All right. uh, and we, you know, we, we said at the time that uh, essentially, this this I guess this paradigm that exists, where we have a body and a soul, uh, the way it starts off. How does life start off? Who's who's dominant and who is uh, who is who's the host, uh, and who is the uh, the more minor player? Our body is most certainly dominant, and we have a soul as well. You know, we have the influence of the soul, but it pales in comparison uh, to the body. Which, interestingly, you know, if you want to make another parallel here, we would argue that as humans, we're also broken. Because the power that exudes godliness, our soul, is, you know, is, is, is subservient to our body, which is the exact opposite of that. And it's almost identical to the world, where in the world, at least at the beginning... It starts off where the power of the physicality, the power of this world, the power of the things that don't last, is entirely dominant. And the one thing that lasts forever, the one thing that's eternal, the one in true independent reality, that's just, people are blind to it. You know, that's chaos. They, they don't see it. They're, they're walking around in darkness. But essentially, as humans, we're a small little world where we start off our life, we start off our life with also the, you know, just this, opposite reality where our body is in total control and our soul is just all the way in the wayside. And we too you know, have to have the little Abraham within ourselves just to have this idea penetrate 
and then to maybe Torah, to, to have that populate our mind. You know, if we would say perhaps that the Jewish people are the brains of the world. That's not a crazy statement in any, uh, in any I guess, however you want to present it. Uh, and then hopefully that would reach total dissemination of an entire, of an entire reality. And that would be the idea of Messiah in us as, as humans. So there's, the, there's these parallels. But we look at, 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 at Abraham, he too started off his life as, you know, individually as a, just a regular human. You know, his, his, body, his body was in total control. You know, Abraham the baby probably also just screamed and screamed and screamed that night because he wanted someone to take care of him. If perhaps you could say that if you looked at Abraham as a baby, you would see little Abraham's soul and then he's carrying a donkey on his back, you know, where the donkey is in control. And then what happens throughout the course of his life? He empowers his soul. He awakens his soul. He denies his body. He withholds from his body. And then he slowly, slowly changes the paradigm. And at his height, at his glory, what does he look like? He's riding a donkey. Why? Because he is now in total control of his body. His soul is the only influencer. You know? And that's, as a human, as just Abraham himself, he is a, a manifestation of the Kodolama fixed in the world. Because he himself is someone whose soul, whose godly part, is in total, in total, in total effect, you know, in total power. And he's a representation of what the world ought to be like. And that's why we present him as, as a, you know, he's riding the donkey, Moses is riding the donkey, Messiah is riding the donkey. They live up to what they preach as humans, as individuals. They are um, uh, uh, personifications of Tikkun Olam. And I think that, that's one important point. But this also teaches us, for us, you know, if we want to help towards Tikkun Olam, if we want to be people that are following in Abraham's footsteps, if we want to be people that are standing up for God, so to speak. We're ambassadors for God in the world. We want to be part of this ultimate purpose, this ultimate mission that's going to change everything. How do we do it? We have to make sure that as, as individuals, not as leaders amongst our family and society and community, as individuals, we are personifications right, of Tikkun of, Olam. Of, of we empower our soul, and by doing that, we're necessarily going to have to deny our body. We're going to have to harness. We're going to have to mitigate. We're going to have to attenuate and limit the influence of our body. And only then can we slowly try to perch ourselves on top of our little donkey. When we do that, then we have the power to actually influence others as well. Just like Abraham. Abraham influenced. Moses influenced. Messiah is going to influence. Well, how do they do it? Well, we're told they first they encounter themselves, then they... Well, I'm not, I'm not going to say we have to be perfect in order to be an influencer, but to the degree that someone is able to conquer their own tikkun olam, that is the degree of influence they could potentially have on other, on other people as well. Abraham, Moses, and Messiah, they do it entirely, thus they're able to be representative of an entire massive change in the trajectory, tra- trajectory of the world. So to bring this to a more practical uh, sense for us, you know, a lot of people, they look at the Torah and they say, okay, Torah, read it. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And you're like, okay, does God really care what I eat? Does he really care what, you know? It's so important that I pray to him every day. Is like, or, you know, is it, is it so important? Is, is that what really what God cares about? You know, that's a common question. You know, is it really important if I eat milk and meat together? Is that what God cares about? Or what kind of razor I use to shave my, like, is it really? 
Is that, is that what God cares about? That's a common question. The answer is, uh, the simple answer, I just, you know, to, to, it, 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 you know with in, uh, in, in view of, of, of what we just said till now, is that all the mitzvahs are essentially creating the reality where our soul is dominant and our body is recessive. Our body is, uh, is less dominant, is weaker. By doing that, you necessarily have to limit. You have to subject the body. Thus, if there's things that your body wants and you say no, even if they're arbitrary, right, but essentially you're weakening your body. By doing that, right, the, 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 the little seesaw empowers your soul a little bit. Just merely saying no to your body, whatever it may be. Right? Even if it's just arbitrary, you're essentially empowering your soul. So the Torah, we could say, is a very convenient way to do that. Even if you say, oh, is it so important if, if I do this or not? But let's say it's not important. Let's say it's not important if milk or meat, who cares about that, right? Let's assume, for argument's sake. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go on record saying that I'm gonna say that, but let's assume that that's true. Still, right, you're telling your body no. By doing that, right, even if it's for totally no reason, you're empowering your soul. And you're creating the reality where your soul is, is getting a little bit more power, your body's being a little bit more weakened. Thus, you could say we're finding the Torah, right? Kadesh uh, be holy, it says. Be holy. What does it mean, be holy? Withhold from things that are permitted. Wait a minute. The Torah has 365 pro- categories of prohibitions. Do we really need more things that are prohibited? Really need more? We need more uh, bodily restrictions? Well, perhaps that if you want to become holy, but, but if you want to have a dominant soul, you will maybe want to go a little bit beyond that. You want to say, even things that are permitted to me, to my body, that is, I'm going to say no to it. Because merely doing that, that exercise of telling the body no is empowering the soul and weakening the body and creating more of this reality that your soul has more control and more say in, in, your, in, your, in, your, in your perspectives and your consciousness in life. Thus, we could say that, that you know, and I think this, this is illuminating to us, just about Torah at large, you know, Every mitzvah, we could say, we could judge it as an individual. We say, oh, okay, well, what's the meaning behind this mitzvah? You know, don't, uh, you know, you know, don't do X, Y, or Z. You know, there's a lot of things to fulfill, fill those blanks. And we could say, oh, well, what's the meaning behind it? How does my life, how do I benefit if I do that? You know, what's the cost-benefit analysis? You know, that's a, that's a good question, you know. I think maybe it's, it's worthy of pursuing that. But at large, we could say, any time I'm telling my body no, my body wants to do something, I'm withholding from it, right? I'm weaning myself a little bit of this heavy burden, this, this donkey that I'm riding and taking on my back. And a little bit more, I'm empowering my soul, and hopefully at the end, the end game is, when I'm a, when I'm a, me as, you know, anyone, right? Any individual right, who empowers a soul to the degree, where, and they totally uh, uh, n- n- uh, make negligible, uh, and it's significant in the effect of their, uh, of, of, of their body, and their souls in total control, well, then they're individually a personification of Tukun Alam, and they'll be a great influencer uh, on others as well. Any questions still now? So let's all tell Steve Heller next week that the hamburger with the cheese on top is really bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, remember, Ivan, well, Ivan was a long-time Rabbi, who actually said, "Yeah, no, no, no. Let's go and eat, so to feel, fulfill the body needs, so that 
when I attend to my soul, I can concentrate. The body doesn't distract me. Mm-hmm. This is. So that's that's a tactic. Yes, 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 yes. So this is opposite what you're saying now. Well, it's not just it's not just a rabbi. If you look at um, you look at Isaac. So Isaac, he tells his son Esau, "I want you to go and hunt down some animals for me and make delicious, delicious, the best kind of meal possible. Why? I want to give you a blessing." But Isaac's now a glutton. He's like, oh, "It has to be fresh. Oh, you know, I got it the best. You know, top of the line." So. That is a tactic that's used wherein someone, if someone wants to, if someone wants to achieve meteoric spiritual heights, the donkey is going to say no. Uh, and therefore, to mollify and assuage their donkey, so to speak, you throw him a bone, so to speak. So Isaac at that time wanted to reach prophecy. Because he wanted to give a prophetic blessing to his son. He ended up giving it to, to Jacob, as we know, all know. But he wanted to achieve prophecy. To, to have this temporary spiritual ascension, he knows that a body's going to drag him down. We have to make sure that our body and our soul are sometimes on the same page. We don't necessarily always want to just be conflict, conflict, conflict with our body. Sometimes right, we're only going to achieve a certain spiritual height if our body is okay with that as well. So thus, if we link the spiritual greatness, the spiritual achievement to a, something that makes the body happy, like a delicious steak, right? well, then maybe we could do it. Just like we have King David, King David's playing music to achieve prophecy. Why? Because you have to have, make sure your body is quieted. It's not rebelling against the spiritual greatness. So that's a tactic. But big picture strategy, right? you want to make sure that your body is not, is, is not dominant. Right? That is not about uh, empowering the body. It's about quieting it, making it... Uh, uh, amenable to what you're about to do on a spiritual level. Yeah. Could you comment just briefly about the idea that Rabbi Moshe Kamarzati talks about um, one's tikkun, one's bringing himself to mitzvahs is also about uh, almost like a generational atonement. You, you, you also are affecting like everybody around you and the whole world around you. Yeah. I mean, obviously we need to look at ourselves first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, the, the interdependency of, of all of humanity. Um, you know, we, we find sometimes in Jewish literature, I know we can talk about this for a while and, and totally uh, go off topic, which we can do, but it's a good topic. Um, and that the idea of collective punishment or collective reward, uh, which sometimes we judge as a nation. The idea of arvus, the idea of we are in, if someone is lacking in a mitzvah, any other Jew or any other human really even, uh, there, then I don't know if it's any other human, but let's say someone of the, uh, if someone of the same nation, and they're lacking, I'm lacking as well. That's why, like for example, uh, you know, if I if I did a mitzvah, if I already fulfilled my mitzvah, but someone else didn't, I could say the blessing for them as if I was instructed. What do you mean you already fulfilled your mitzvah? No, if someone else is lacking in a mitzvah, I'm lacking as well. Uh, and additionally, you know, like there's the famous statement of Rabbi Israel Salanter. He says, if someone, if 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 a Jew in Lithuania, this is this is the 19th century. Lithuania is the, well, that was the center of Jewish excellence in the 19th century. If a Jew in Lithuania, right, uh, is a little bit lax in his Torah study, then a Jew in Paris is gonna is gonna desecrate the Shabbat. So the idea of like if, if the greater that I am, or the the more attention that I that I pay to my activities and to my behavior and to my uh, dedication towards what's important, that 
uh, in the spiritual way affects other people. Yes, that's it. Yeah. But yes, it's a it's a big, a big topic, and we will talk about some other time. Same thing if one Jew hurts, all the Jews hurt. Yeah, and that's the idea of the idea, the idea of revenge. Like the Talmud says, revenge is what what's an, what's an illustration of revenge? If someone is using a sickle to cut wheat, and then by mistake his right hand cuts off his left hand, so the left hand, the, the severed left hand, picks up the sickle and cuts off the right hand as as revenge. You know, it doesn't make sense. Like if you're part of one entity. You know, if you're, if, you're, if you're all just part of one entity, so 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 you know, so one guy, hurt, so this, you know, it's self-flagellation to hurt yourself. Uh, you know, we don't feel like that, but that's you know, you know, in the reality, Jewish people as one, but even even the entire humanity. You know, we're told that the entire humanity is all little particles of a, of atom. You know, which is a mind-blowing idea. You know, the, the the original atom, atom during that first week, not atom, not atom afterwards. Uh, yes, yeah, so that, that that's a very interesting idea, very compelling, very intriguing. Uh, idea. Let's move on to Messiah the man, the individual. So if Messiah the mission is about achieving universal acceptance of the idea of God, well, what's Messiah, the individual? That's someone who's going to be the steward of that transformation. Uh, And what are his qualifications? So we find uh, some qualifications. Number one, that he's going to be a king from the Davidic line. Uh, Thus, if you're not from the family of David, you're disqualified. Uh, If you're a Kohen, fantastic, you're disqualified. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, important that all legitimate Jewish kings come from the house of David, as we all know. Uh, so if he's going to be a king, he's going to be a legitimate king of Israel, and he's going to uh, be from the family of David. Uh, Maimonides writes he's going to study Torah and perform mitzvahs like David, his ancestor, so he's going to be a tremendous, on an individual level, uh, of his, um, uh, his, uh, his, his Torah scholarship and his uh, activities, his behavior is going to be uh, uh, spectacular. He's going to be an influencer upon Israel to abide by the Torah. So he's going to be a, a, a someone who's going to obviously uh, going to go out and, uh, and influence others uh, to uh, to observe the Torah. And lastly, the last thing that we, the last individual personal qualification uh, is that he's going to battle the battles of Hashem. He's going to battle the wars of Hashem. Now, what that means is a little bit ambiguous. Uh, it could mean that it's actually battles, going you know, to be a, a, a battle, you know, a leader, a military leader. But it could also mean like the spiritual battles of, of Hashem. You know, like our world is a conflict. It's a conflict because there are opposites, opposite agendas that are, you know, that are, you know, that are, that are, that are, that are, uh, that are uh, uh, mutually exclusive. You know, the body and soul cannot both be in charge. Right? It's not possible. Right? The body and soul's agenda cannot both be fulfilled. So that essentially, there's a war at hand. Our world is a war. It's a war between uh, the realization of God, the agenda of the soul, and our body, which wants us to avoid thinking about anything beyond what we can see and touch and think about for our 70 years of existence in life. That's a war. Perhaps what it means that Messiah is going to battle the wars of Hashem on that level. I don't know. Maybe both. But those are the individual qualifications. And what will he do? Number one, he'll reestablish the kingdom of David in Israel. Number two, build a temple, temple te- on Temple Mount. Uh, this is what's called the third temple. Uh, gather the dispersed Jews to Israel. Going to be a, a reunion of Jews in Israel. Uh, oversee the reinstitution of Jewish law. Reestablish sacrificial and agricultural law in Israel. Now, if I told you this 200 years ago, you would say, huh, everyone's going to go back to Israel? Good luck. There's nothing going on. There's no, almost, almost bereft of Jews. To, more, if you go about 300 years, it's almost entirely bereft of Jews. Some Jews live in Tzvat, some Jews scattered everywhere, but it's, it's an empty and desolate land. 
Today, there's 6 million Jews living in Israel. And it's rapidly growing. Rapidly, rapidly growing. Now, of course, you know, we don't have a temple yet built. But 40 years, you know, 50 years ago, we didn't even have Jerusalem, you know. And 70 years ago, the Jewish, Jews didn't have to control all over the land of Israel. And that was a stretch. You know, and 100 years ago, it was a dream. You know, it was a, it was a, it was a pipe dream 100 years ago. And I think today, we could kind of really foresee how this could potentially happen, just using, just with progressive means, you know, what, what we have today and how this could develop in the future. It's not such a stretch, you know. If the state of Israel decided tomorrow to build a temple on Temple Mount, if there was, I guess, support of that idea, and there is tremendous support of that idea, but if they could do it in a half hour, all you need is some bulldozers, you know, or I always made the joke. A lot of soldiers. <laughs> no, you, you don't. You really don't. They don't need a lot of soldiers. They have total security control of that area. They can, it, they can be done in a week. You know, they, it's interesting because every Islamic structure in the world has a crescent on top of it. The symbol of Islam is a crescent, and it's uh, facing Mecca. Uh, now, we know that on Temple Mount, where the temple stood, there's the shrine built in the year 691, uh, which is the Dome of the Rock, which in the 1980s, I think it was the 1980s, uh, King Hussein of Jordan sold one of his houses in London and had it plated with, six, with 80 kilos of gold. It wasn't gold till till very recently. Uh, but it's the it's an Islamic. It's not it's not a mosque. Very importantly, it's not a mosque. The mosque is is, is a few hundred feet over uh, to the south. That's the uh, the Al Aqsa Mosque. But that's not a mosque. It's a shrine, uh, which I think uh, a little unpopular opinion alert. But I think it's actually a good thing that the Muslims control. Because we know Jews are not allowed to go there right now. Uh, when there's a temple, those bad things will change. But right now, Jews are not allowed to go there. Thus, it's, it actually works out really nicely that the Muslims are there, so Jews don't essentially avoid the area. Some people go, but but it's not, it's not, it's not like it became a tourist site where people are taking selfies, you know, by the holiest site of Israel where they're not supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. But what's interesting about it is that is that this is the one Islamic structure that does not have a crescent on top. It actually has a little little circle. So I once I once said that uh, that the reason why it has a circle was when they're ready to build a temple, they're going to put a little little bulldozer and just lift it up like that and just clear it away. You know. My mother actually went there once as a tourist. Yeah. There are bitch signs that say Jews by Jewish law not allowed to go there, but some Jews still go there. Uh, e- even even if you go there, the question is where where are you allowed to go? Where are you not allowed to go? It's 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 there's somewhat of a debate exactly where on Temple Mount the temple stood. Um, the most widely accepted opinion is that it stood actually where the Dome of the Rock is right now. In fact, that rock is a rock that's mentioned in the Talmud. The Talmud mentions this massive rock that was there. Mm-hmm. So there's many, a lot of sources that would make that argument. There are others that say it's, it's maybe a, a few hundred feet south, uh, towards the southern part of the uh, of the plateau, of the platform. There are people that that you know let's say you like. Either way, um, the generally accepted uh, position is that <laughs> Jews don't go there. So it would be so easy to do it, then why not? Well, the question is if if it's 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 not just the fact that they could do it; it's the fact that it's 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 a it's a uh, 
it's a confluence of, of, of factors, you know, where the Jewish people are in Israel and it's the time, you know, when it's the time, but it's the time, you know. I think we're creeping closer to that time and we're kind of creeping closer to that location as well, you know. Um, yeah, so, and a lot of these things are, 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 are unknown to us exactly how they're going to they're gonna work out. And that, but I think today we have a much clearer picture of how, how it is going to work out. The idea of coming back to Israel is, yeah, we're there already, you know. We're in Israel, and it's soon going to be the biggest, uh, uh, the biggest population center of, of Jews in the world. It's going to be Israel. It's, the United States now has some more Jews, I think, by a little bit. But that's, that's going to change very, very soon. Maybe. Maybe. Because establishing a monarchy in Israel over the current thriving democracy seems to be an unnecessary obstacle. Yeah. The, yeah. The question is, what does it what does it mean? I thought that's a very that's a very good question. Two thousand years ago, they didn't have prime ministers, right? So right. So could it, could it mean that it's someone who is who is the prime minister or someone who's a great influence? I think that's that that's a very that's not a departure necessarily from we don't know like we said Maimonides is really had his way by the way to point out that we don't know the true answer is we don't know what's going to happen because we're not told and the reason we're not told about it because it's not so important for us what actually happens afterwards um, interestingly Maimonides orders his 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 books in orders of importance uh, we know that the first thing the first item that's tackled by Maimonides in his in his fourteen volume magnum, magnum opus uh, Mishnah Torah, which is essentially all of Judaism in fourteen books. Uh, so the first thing that he deals with is Yisroel Torah, with foundations of Judaism. Starts off with God as the first first chapters of God. You know what you know what are the most important ideals? Then he talks about Torah and rejecting idolatry and the laws of repentance, the laws of, of great character. Like, those are the first thing that he deals with. The very, very last two chapters are the laws of Messiah. And in fact, the, 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 cha- the two chapters that precede that are the laws of Gentiles. Right. So, uh, to me, it was always interesting that Maimonides is telling us, essentially, that it's more important for us to know as Jews what Gentiles need to do than, than the laws of Messiah. Uh, which, to me, is very interesting. That's the last thing that he mentions. Now, what, maybe, he's mentioned, maybe it's the last thing that he mentions for other reasons. Who knows? But he goes out of his way to tell you that don't try to make calculations when it's going to come. Mm-hmm. Don't try to bring proofs or this and that. It, it, a lot of times, you know, where the, especially where there's been a yearning for, uh, for redemption. When things are bad, people always say, okay, but Mashiach comes now, save us all. You know? And then you make calculations, you find some proof, and you say, oh, it's coming now, and oh, don't worry, it ends, you know, it's, and that's, that's, not, that's not the way we work, you know. And in fact, the Talmud says, three things come suddenly out of the blue when no one's ready for it. And one of those is Messiah. And the other ones are Metziah, which means finding a lost object, and Akrav, which is a scorpion. Very interesting. Uh, and in fact, it says three things are, are, come suddenly, and... Uh, so Mashiach is one Metziah is a lost object no one says oh, I'm going to find a lost object now in Manhattan I'm going to look for someone who you know for, for a roll that's on the floor you know I'm going to look for it you, you can't do that if you chance upon it great if not not and Akrav is a, is a uh, scorpion it just pounces and boom and it, and it stings and the commentary is right this is mind blowing but it says that it's really one thing it's Mashiach you know Mashiach for some people 
will be like finding a lost object, a great joy. For some people, it will be like being bitten by a scorpion. Right? It's not a universal experience. Right? And I would perhaps make the argument for the people who made this mission of Mashiach part of their agenda, part of their priorities in life, well, then it's great fulfillment of that. For people that worship their bodies, so to speak, you know, that all they want is to hone and sharpen their little, uh, little donkey, to them, it's going to be a repudiation of their lives. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be disastrous. It's going to be like in a scorpion bite. Because everything that they held in true value is now crumbled to the ground. Uh, but additionally, we're told no, no miracles. I'm not looking for any miracles. I'm not looking for splitting the sea, reviving the dead. All that is not important to us. Uh, no supernatural signs. What we have is what we have. Wolf and lamb, that's a metaphor. Um, but the idea of, of a certain calming, a certain peacefulness that's going to uh, happen, that, you know, I would even make the argument today is the most peaceful, peaceful time we've had in, in, in memories, you know. Yes, we have the news, so we hear only the bad things, you know, uh, that happen around the world. But if you look at history, just give me any, time, any date in history, uh, it was uh, geopolitically uh, more precarious than it is today. In fact, there's a... Uh, uh, the sociologist, the Jewish sociologist in Harvard who wrote a book about that, his name is Stephen Pinker, about how the fact that today is becoming progressively more and more peaceful um, historically, which is interesting because, you know, we would, we would think, no, we have ISIS, whatever. You know, they beheaded some journalists. You know, we have no idea what was going on like three, four, five hundred years ago, you know, when there's massive wars in Europe and there was just wholesale slaughter, you know. But either way, uh, for, uh, one of the marks of a false messiah is the fact that they either change the Torah or uh, declare themselves to be more than just a human or try to do signs or do trickery or sorcery or whatever like that to try to you know, incite the masses or uh, um, con the masses into thinking that something special. Romanus tells us that no, we're not looking for any any miracles, no changes in the orders of nature, no reviving the dead, no changing mitzvahs. Very important. We know that the Jewish, the, the terrible uh, false messiah of the 16th century, Shabtai Tzvi Yemach Shemo, may his name be blotted, because he literally derailed the Jewish mission for hundreds of years. But he was the one who says, we're changing the laws of the Torah. And if you open up just the book of Maimonides, which was written before that, it says, if someone comes and says, I want to change one iota, one letter of the Torah, that's a false messiah. That's a false prophet, and you should know that. And he comes in, and he just... And, and that's a result of the people being so desperate for any, anything to cling to in the form of redemption that they kind of lost their senses. And it, the, the impact, the negative impact was, was, was terrible. And in fact, Maimonides uh, writes that the only difference between Olam Hazeh, this world, and days of Mashiach is our subjugation to the kingdoms. To the kingdom. Shibud Malchias Bilvad. Now, what does it mean, subjugation to the kingdom? It could mean that we have independence. Simple understanding. We say, well, we have the land of Israel. We have our own land. We no longer need to be beholden to other people. I think that could be a very simple understanding. Additionally, perhaps it could mean uh, that the kingdom of our body of the Yetzirah, of our evil inclination, the kingdom of our donkey, so to speak, that the kingdom is, 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 is no longer there. Right? The kingdom that we're totally uh, in control of our body, 
we feel like we have to do. We feel like what our Yetzirah wants us to do is what we want to do. Right? We're being conned into thinking that that control, that dominion is going to disappear at, at that time. Interesting. I, like we said, maybe they're both true. But both, both those ideas uh, perhaps are, uh, are what the interpretation of that means. Uh, but we know, like, he, Maimonides deals with other questions. Well, what about Elijah? And will there be multiple messiahs? And what if they die? And Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben David, all these things that we perhaps have heard. He says we don't know, and even the great prophets don't know and don't think about it, because if we think about it too much, you, 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 nothing good will come out of, uh, out, out of such a pursuit. Well, that's going to happen. Yeah. What you said, you're reestablishing the Israel, build a temple, gather the spiritual to Israel, oversee the reinstitution of, of Jewish law, agricultural. A lot of things are going to happen. It's just no, no miracles. Boom. Yeah, of course, to us. To us, but there's a. No, the world. No. Yeah, and remember, the temple, the temple, the temple is a temple for not just the Jewish people. He basically based feel like out that even even the original temples, even Solomon's temple. All the Gentiles came and did, gave sacrifices. It's not just like I, I said. The idea of Messiah is universal. Are they saying that billions of people are going to become Jewish? No, no, no. no. They don't become Jewish. Why do you have to become? You have to be Jewish to be good. Uh, but they're going to have this realization, and they're going to realize that the that the Jewish God is is real, and that the Jewish people are the people that are upholding his uh, the, or that upheld uh, his. Uh, his agenda in the world, and that the temple is 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 the physical manifestation of this reality. Well, it sounds like if that is. The but case, they don't need to be Jewish to be good, or to be to be to have this realization. I hear that, but I'm kind of agreeing with Deborah there. If that's what the um, the lay of the land is going to look like, then it sounds to me like you're going to have a massive conversion. Well, perhaps. You know, I well, think that even they, today. They say that you won't be able to convert after Mashiach. Right. So we know that the times of of, of Solomon and 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 David, uh, those were times where because it was so good for the Jewish people uh, that they didn't allow any conversion. So yes, so there might not be any conversions. But even I think today, like uh, you know, if we were to just make projections or just analysis of trends of religious trends in the world, I would I would argue that there's a tremendous interest in, in, in Judaism from non-Jews today. Yeah. Uh, and that's never happened before. Never. As a matter of fact, if the name Noach movement is so huge, most Jews would pass out if they realize how many people in the world, we're talking about former Muslims, Christians, Hindus, are all taking on universal Torah ideas, Musar, wisdom. So that yeah. means we're going to have uh, temple membership go through that's what I'm hearing. Would you would you mind commenting on Rav Yahashua uh, uh, Ben Levi says he sees uh, Elijah and Elijah says he's asked where's Mashiach he says find you'll find Mashiach at the gates of Rome you'll find him in Windsor Leopard Oil. Could you elaborate on that a little? Yeah, bit? so uh, that has something to do with this, right? Well, the Talmud says that uh, they asked him where's the Messiah. So he says just go to the the Ro- they go to the uh, Go to the gates of Rome, and you'll see that all the lepers are sitting there. He's one of the lepers, but he's the one who, when he takes off his bandages, everyone takes off all the bandages at once, and then put, applies a new, uh, f- a new, a fresh new set of bandages. He takes off one, 
and puts on a new one. Takes the phone and puts on a new one. Why? Because in case he gets called for his responsibility, he'll be ready to go at any moment. That's what the Talmud says. Now, what this means, uh, it's a good question. Uh, clearly, <laughs> it's saying uh, yes. It's not talking. It doesn't mean that. Does it mean that he has to be a leper? If he's not a leper, we're not. We're not allowing. Uh, you don't fulfill the covenant. I think it, perhaps it could mean that he's someone who is uh, perhaps a pariah because he's standing up for things that people find disturbing. I think that's a, a good interpretation. Um, I think that's one. That's one you know, what, what does it mean? Of, what, what is a leper? What, why are they sitting at the at, at the gates of the city? Because they're not allowed in the city. You know, huh? so perhaps it means the Messiah is someone who's preaching things that we find to be painful, disturbing, you know, distasteful, because he's telling us things. He's pointing out our flaws, you know, and that's something that we don't like. No one likes to be faced with tasks of of trying to improve themselves and change their you know their reality. I think that's one thing that we could say. The idea, another thing we could pull out is that Messiah, the individual, is ready to go. There has to be when the world, when the Jewish people are ready for him, he's there. So we have this idea of, of every generation has a Messiah, a potential Messiah. Provided the generation is worthy of it, and the Messiah is also worthy of it, uh, then maybe if those things come together, then we have the Messiah. Like we know Maimonides even writes that Rabbi Akiva thought that Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. Uh, Bar Kokhba, but he... But why? Well, but what was wrong with that? Well, the, he died. He was killed. He was killed, and he was killed in sin as well. So then we know he's not the Messiah. But he maybe was messianic potential. He had the potential of Messiah, but he himself maybe the nation was also lacking at the time. But either way, this is someone who seemed like he could have fulfilled some of the responsibility requirements. He didn't ask for any miracles. He didn't ask for any signs. He just thought he was worthy of it. Uh, but he seemed, I guess he wasn't worthy as an individual. But there has to be uh, the Messiah being ready, uh, but maybe there is, he's ready to go, and then we have to be ready as a nation, as a people, and as a, as a species as well uh, for that. But Maimonides, he, he finishes his, his writing on Messiah with the following uh, words. And he tells you like this, he says, listen, the exact order of what is actually going to happen, the exact particularities of all the details, it's not a principle of our religion. And I, I think, you know, it's essentially, he uses the same word, uh, principle of our religion, which which what we use at the beginning, the very first words of Maimonides about the principle of our religion. So this is not the principle of our religion. And a person shouldn't spend too much time about it and don't a- analyze the Talmud and the Midrash to talk about it. Don't make it a priority in your lives because it does not bring to you not the fear of God, not the love of God. Right? The two major components of what our religion is trying to impart within us, fear of God, love of God, those two pillars that uphold our world, not, analysis of Messiah is not going to bring you to either one of them. And don't try to calculate it. Uh, why? Because everyone calculates that it just messes with their mind. Wait for it. Believe that it's coming, and it's coming in the way that we describe roughly. Potential. potential Jesus as he originally was, not as the church made him later, seems to meet a lot of those criteria. Well, he didn't he, he didn't build a temple. Didn't, he didn't build a temple and he spawned Yeah. Well that walking on water and turning Yeah, the, the, the but, 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 but that's a mess. A lot of that 
but either but either But my, and they came back and that's why these disciples are following him like either way the 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 historicity of that whole of the of the whole JC narrative is is a big question we talked about this um yeah but listen it's possible that the, you know there's been a lot we have a, recently in the 1990s we had the Lubavitch Rebbe um a lot of his a lot of his disciples so like this I'm saying um Chabad, uh, I would make the argument that uh, well, Chabad has had a tradition for hundreds of years that the last Rebbe is going to be the Mashiach. We know the Mashiach principle is a core principle of Chabad, which to me it's it's interesting because they hold the Rambam in very high accord, and he tells you not to make it a it's not a, it's not a principle. Either way, it's an interesting observation. If you take the Messiah out of Christianity, there, it does it can't exist. Yeah, if you take Messiah out of Judaism. Oh yeah, because it's not—it's not such an important idea. Like we have a responsibility, we have our own responsibilities. What happens at the end game is well, that's that's the end game. You know, we're not necessarily at the end game, uh, but the idea of uh, someone who you may have thought was Messiah who dies—it's not a new idea. And you know, unfortunately, there's some, even to this day, there's some members of Lubavitch Chabad community that still uh, believe. I—I talk to people like this. I know it's true. Uh, still believe he's alive. He's coming back. You know, that's not a new idea. We've heard that before, and it doesn't end well. Uh, his name is Rabbi Schneerson. He was this great rabbi who did a lot. Like he started the whole network of shluchim around the world and did a lot to bring people back to Judaism. Uh, but they would, you know, they 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 thought that perhaps he was Messiah because he, you know, he maybe was a good candidate. So maybe maybe he wasn't a perfect candidate, or maybe the Jewish people weren't ready for it. So whatever reason, either way, now that he's dead, we have to move move on. Uh, and the hope is that there's a lot of responsible leadership in Chabad that they're going to move on. You know, but he. That's right. Is our site? Uh, what was it? Yeah, it was. A, uh, I think it was on Saturday or Friday. I remember that's what it was. Gimel Thomas. Wait, so uh, Thursday. To me, the it might be. T- thing is Hashem says, no, it's yesterday. Hashem says uh, in the prophets, in his in his time. I mean, the prophets say in his time he will hasten it. So yeah. You know why worry about it? You know. Is that, that's what we want to tell us again and again. So practical. We just need to be concerned about living our lives every day. God, we have our soul refreshed and can go on and not worry about all this pie in the sky. That's Christianity. <laughs> okay, um, I, I, I agree, but the, the uh, it's important for us to realize that <laughs> there's something very uh, alluring about the idea of Messiah. It's very exciting, very compelling. Uh, and I don't theref- agree with you. <clears throat> I think it's just like a wild goose chase. I think it takes you no, away but the idea of, from of, your of, day-to-day. I, I agree with that, but I think this, it's still an exciting idea. Yeah. And, and it has the potential to, to captivate and to hold you captive, unfortunately. Uh, so I'm saying, so like my mind tells us, not, don't think about it too much. It doesn't do any good for you. It and it's you. It, but it could be a potential pitfall if you make a bold claim that someone is Messiah and then they're not Messiah and then your worldview has to alter. And that's never fun. Okay, so what does it mean for us, and what can we do to expedite Messiah's arrival? So I think the, what Mamanis tells us is that we wait for it, we believe it's coming, that's biblically mandated. We know one of the 13 principles of Judaism is to believe in it, but also not to calculate when it's going to come. But also, we, as we already mentioned, Messiah is more than the individual, it's the idea. And the idea is a 2,000-year idea, a 2,000-year process. 
and that is tikkun olam, fixing the world, fixing ourselves, fixing our communities, fixing the world. If we improve ourselves, our body-soul relationship, if we empower our soul and we withhold from our body, we're essentially hastening the Messiah's arrival because we're hastening to Kulam, and thus we're bringing the world closer to its point where Messiah is, is a reality. Thus, we could partake in the mission of, of, of this two dozen years of, of, of human responsibility on our own without Messiah actually coming by hastening it, by trying to improve ourselves our communities, our behavior, our soul, um, and then we're doing what we can to expedite the completion of of this of this process. Uh, we're told I, we mentioned this uh, already in in one form, but we're told in the Talmud once again that uh, that the Messiah will come in a generation that's entirely wicked or a generation that's entirely righteous. What this means is, is that the idea of universal realization of, the, of, of, of one God can happen either because of us or despite of us. It's going to happen regardless. We have the choice, is it going to happen in the best kind of situation or in the worst kind of situation? Like I mentioned, Mashiach is coming, it's either finding a lost object or it's getting bitten by the, by the scorpion. It's going to happen. We have 2,000, we have another 200 and some odd years for, to, to make sure that it happens. However, it's our choice is it going to be a good thing for us or a bad thing for us? Is it going to be a, 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 a fulfillment of our life's mission or is it going to be a repudiation of our life's mission? It could be very good or very bad for us. Right? That's where our choice lies and that's where our decisions uh, influence uh, the, this process. So that's the Messianic era and the idea of Messiah. Let's move on to the next one, resurrection. Uh, so simply what this means is, you know, people die. Everyone dies. That's the human condition. It's a... Uh, Someone, uh, it's, it's a disease that everyone dies from. So life is. Um, yet we're told in the Torah, in the Talmud, it's one of the, 13, once again, another one of the 13 principles, that there's the idea of chiesamesim, resuscitation of the dead. Dead people <coughs> we're gonna co- are going to come back to life. Right? The body and soul separated at death will once again be reunited. Body and soul, the human, will once again uh, reemerge. Now, the Talmud brings, well, the Mishnah, the Mishnah says that if someone says, Ha-omer ein ein if someone says that there's no, such, there's no biblical source material that, uh, that says that there will be resuscitation of the dead, uh, he has no portion of the world to come. And the Talmud goes on to bring Tens of sources, more than ten, I can't even count, I lost track of count, uh, sources to, to, to this uh, effect, that there will be, that dead people will live again. It brings examples about Aaron receiving truma, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob living in Israel, once when Israel belongs to the Jewish people. Moses and Joshua make reappearances. We find many, many, many sources uh, to talk about, you know, where the, where the Torah itself foretells that this is going to happen. Now, we find some narratives in the Talmud as well. The Talmud says, it seems like this idea was, was a very, um, very interesting idea uh, to people, even non-Jews at the time. And it records a conversation that happened with Caesar and Rabban Gamliel. Gamliel is the Nasi, the president of the, of, the, of the people at the time. 
of the Jewish people at the time, and he had a conversation. Remember, the Jewish leader at that time was also a political leader. So he had a conversation with Caesar, and Caesar asked him the question, how does how is it possible? How is it possible? How is God going to take earth, right? Earth that, that and, make, and, make, and make humans. So um, the answer was, then imagine you had two contractors in town, two, people, two builders. One of them builds out of water, and one of them builds out of cement. Which, which one's more impressive? What's a more impressive feat? Water. Building out of water is a much more impressive feat. So he said to him, us, all of us, well, what are we made out of? We're made out of water. We're made out of this, this uh, fluids, essentially. Right? And that makes all of us. If the Almighty could create humans out of fluids, out of water, certainly out of earth, out of cement. That, that, that's the answer. Uh, which I think it's in a part of, like for us, it's like, oh, someone's dead, they're dead, it's final. We think of death as being final. But, you know, if we were to just analyze, if we were to just, you know, just erase what we know about how life gets created, just forget about that for a second. You know, and just to think, which one's more impressive? You know, to take a, a, a little sperm, the microscopic size, and, you know, to, to, to have the miracle of life just happen. We, we accept it for granted because we're used to it. But that is essentially a miracle. And that's a much greater miracle than taking Earth and forming a human out of what a human's composed of. You know, if you were to uh, disassemble a human into the various different... Uh, uh, I guess elements of what he is. You could buy it in a drugstore for like five dollars. You know, we're not very complex. You know, well, we are very complex, but on, on, a, on, a, on a granule material level, we're not very complex. You know, we're seventy percent water. You could buy two, couple of jugs of water, and you right, you turn on the tap. You know, we're some carbon and some whatnot. That's what. That's it. That's what we are. You know, but is that what life is? No, of course not. You know, we're God formed us to be humans, and that's remarkable. But if God can make us out of water, certainly God can make us. Out of, out of earth. That was the answer. Um, I was thinking just as an example for us, you know, if you were to take like a, I don't know, an iPad over here, right? So you take the iPad and you were to just separate all the materials. So you have some, some plastic and some, and some, the motherboard is also made out of it, silicon. Uh, you have some metal, there's some metal around there. You have some glass. Right. You, you have some wire, copper wires. If you were to just make piles of materials, okay, and you say, okay, you just have them all over here. Okay, I'm going to take this and turn it into an iPad. You'll say, good luck with that, right? But imagine you had an actual iPad, but it, just, it wasn't turning on. Like turning it on, it just wasn't turning it on. So you go to your your uncle or your brother-in-law who's good with gadgets, you know, and they restart it and refresh it and whatever, and it starts working, you know. I like to think of, you know, a human. So if a human was already around, it was working, the hardware was there, you know, to restart it shouldn't be as hard in our minds as to start it from scratch, to create something brand new out of just nothingness. I think it's a good way to think about it, about, about you know, to make it a little closer uh, to our, to, to, you know, to our, to, to our perspectives. But either way, I want everyone to hold the thought of, of, of essentially the distinction between how we are formed today out of water, so to speak, and how we're formed in the future out of earth, because it's going to be an important point later on. Okay, so, so, so okay, fine. So, so bodies come back to life. How is that in other words? Maybe it's a little bit of a different format. Uh, we're using not water. We're using earth. Okay, fine. 
what happens now? Okay, so we have a solo. Oh, we live again. We, let's go back to our jobs. Uh, go back to your company and say, uh, I know it's been a while, <laughs> but I uh, took a long extended break. Can I get another, you know, can I get another? Is that what it's about? Um, what happens during this? We just get life again and we die again and we start, we do it over and over and over and over again? Is that what it is? Things will get awful crowded. Yeah, well, maybe. Does everyone get back? Does everyone get entitled to this? Maybe only some people get entitled to this. I don't know. Let, 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 let's try to dig in some deeper. So what happens? But once again, we're going to try to find some source material. So the source material is another debate between another Caesar and, and another rabbi. Uh, this is a little bit later on in history. This is at the end of the second century. Uh, but that's uh, when we meet the, the great uh, debates that happen between Antoninus, uh, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who was the Roman emperor uh, from the year 161, I think, to 180. Uh, and he was a colleague and a friend, a dear friend of Rabbi Judah the Prince, who we all know and revere as the architect of the Mishnah uh, and the leader of the Jewish people at the time, one of the great Jewish leaders we've had in history. And they had a debate, and they had a debate about several things. One of the things they had a debate is like this. Listen to this question. Antoninus asked Rebbe, this, uh, we call him Rebbe, Rabbi Judah the Prince is just nicknamed Rebbe or Rabbi. Uh, so he asked him this question. Listen to the question, guys. He says to him, the body and the soul can each self-exonerate. Right? Someone sinned, they have to get punishment. They have to get judgment for it. Someone did a mitzvah, they get reward for it. Right? That's the paradigm that we're familiar with. Says that this doesn't make sense. Why is that? So someone dies. The body is interned into the ground. The soul is spiritual. So it's, it's a soul. You know, it's still around. And what happens? The Almighty comes to the body and says, You sinned! He says, Me? I sinned? Look at me now. It's the soul that sinned. Ever since the soul left me, I'm just sitting here lying like a bag of bones. And so God goes to this, the soul and says, You sinned! He says, Me? I'm floating around like a bird. I can't do it. It's the body that sinned. So each one can point fingers on the other one and say, They sinned. So how could there ever be judgment? That was his question. So, like all, uh, uh, all great uh, Jewish answers, he says, I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. I'll give you a parable. I'll give you a marshal. What's the parable? He says that there was a king who had a, a fig orchard. Beautiful, young fruits. Beautiful f- fruits. Whole orchard. And he hired some guards to watch it. And he hired, but one of them was blind. One of the guards was blind. One of them was lame. Couldn't walk. One of them couldn't see. One couldn't walk. So they're watching, and the lame, the lame watchman says to the, uh, to the other guy, he says to him, hey, I see some beautiful trees. He says, oh, really? Beautiful trees? What do they have in trees? Beautiful figs. Hmm, maybe we could go partake. Well, how do we go partake? You're blind. You'll walk into the trees. You'll, you, right? And I, I can't watch. He says, you know what? We have an idea. How about you give me a piggyback ride? Right? And I'll direct you. I'll say, make a little right, go left, go straight, and then we'll go we'll eat the trees and we'll split the, food, the fruit. So what happens? He climbs up on him, and they're going, he's navigating, he's telling him, oh, make a right, oh, watch out, there's a branch, right? You know, and eventually they eat up all the fruits. And they're sitting there, and they go back, and they separate themselves, and the king comes and says, hey, where's the fruits? So the lame says, me? I didn't touch him. Look at me, I'm lame, I can't walk, any, I can't walk at all. And the blind guy says, the blind guy says, me? I didn't touch him. I'm blind, how can I possibly go? So you know what the king did? He took the, the blind person. He took the lame person, he put them one on top of the other, and he judged them like one person. So too, the Almighty takes the soul 
and puts it back in the body and judges them like, judges them like one person. Thus, essentially what the Talmud is saying, that's where the Talmud ends. The Talmud is perhaps saying, I think it's a safe analysis of the Talmud, is that, yes, when the body and soul are separated, judgment is not possible. Why? Because any good deed can be attributed, each one to say, well, I didn't do it, the other guy did it. Or everyone will say, well, he didn't do it, I did it. And every bad deed can, can be attributed to either one of them. A human is a fusion of body and soul. It's not a body and a soul, it's, it's, it's both of them, together. It's one. Thus, there cannot be any judgment, nor reward, nor punishment, of a body without a soul, or a soul without a body. Now, if we get rid of reward and punishment, we get rid of everything. Right? This is why reward and punishment is one of the core principles of Judaism. Because if there's no reward and punishment, well, then there's no purpose in activities of good and bad. As an example, like if, if, if your actions don't matter, there's no consequences. If your actions do matter, there is consequences. A parent, like if, if a parent cares about their child, their act, the, child, the child's actions have repercussions, good and bad. Like if you see your neighbor doing something, you don't care about it, it's meaningless to you, but you, your neighbor's kid, well, then you don't act, you don't respond. <coughs> Additionally, as we mentioned last week, uh, the purpose of everything, the purpose of creation, is that God gives us goodness. God gives us pleasure. Reward. But it has to be earned reward. It can't be the bread of, bread of shame. Thus, to fulfill the purpose of, 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 of the world, there has to be reward. But how can there be reward without judgment, without analysis of its activities? And how can there be punishment without analysis? It cannot be. So thus, essentially, you cannot get rid of the idea of reward and punishment. Why? Because our actions, our life has only meaning because reward and punishment exists for our actions. Thus, we essentially have to be resuscitated. We have to be resurrected. We have to once again have this unity of body and soul because otherwise there can be no judgment. It seems like there's an element of reunification of body and soul for judgment, for the sole purpose of judgment and perhaps also punishment or reward. Yes, so that's why the body is sacred as well. Um, the body, uh, we don't, obviously compared to the soul, the body is very insignificant um, in true lasting value. But that's why we treat the body, the Jewish burial is about preserving the body and treating it very well because this is still something which is part of the human. You know, the, we, yes, it doesn't have the same lasting value, but a human is body and soul. Who sinned? Right? The, the, the human, body and soul. Who did a mitzvah? The human, the body and soul. Who gets judged? The human, body and soul. That's why we don't cremate. That's a good point. Uh, we, in, in Judaism, we say that the body has to be treated uh, very, like it was a vessel that held a soul. It's, it's a vessel that perhaps will still hold the soul. And we, we bury it with very strict uh, laws of honoring, of honoring the, the, the deceased. Okay, so that's, uh, that's what it seems like, right? So it seems like reward, the, that, that the reason, the purpose for body and soul being reunified is about, is about judgment and reward and punishment. Okay, now I want to introduce another, another idea here. I need everyone's uh, full attention here because this gets very interesting, I think. We find another conversation. This time it's between Cleopatra and Rabbi Meir. Once again, I said it's very interesting that the Talmud records a lot of times that the, that the uh, 
that the secular people, the non-Jewish people at the time, were interested with this, with with, with these ideas. It's very interesting ideas. So Cleopatra asked Rabbi Meir. She asked him like this: When people, he says, "I know, I believe that people are going to be uh, revived. No problem with that. However, when they come up, will they be will they be clothed or will they be naked?" That's the question that she asked. Which, by the way, Maimonides... It's a good question, right? Maimonides says, he says, when people talk about these questions, they ask all these silly questions. Like, they ask them, clothed or naked. Maimonides was referring to this Talmud that mentions it. But she asked the question, was, you know, I guess, is it so important? Maybe it is important. Either way, that, that was the question that she asked. Uh, and he responds as follows. He says, you take a kernel of wheat, take a seed, you drop it on the ground, you drop it in unclothed. What happened? It emerges with a shaft around it, right? With the, with the kind of clothing. So if you take something that's unclothed and you put it into the ground, it emerges clothed. It emerges clothed. You put it in a, a dead body with tachrichem, right? With shrouds, burial shrouds. It, it goes in clothed. How much certainly is going to emerge clothed? Right? The idea of a, of, of a syllogism, right? If Right? If something that goes in without clothing emerges with clothing, certainly something that goes in with clothing will emerge with clothing. So he says it will emerge with clothing. But there's an interesting point that he says, when he says this, he says, um, if, if a wheat goes in with naked and comes out with clothing, then tzaddikim, righteous people that go in with, with clothing, how much certainly would they emerge with, with clothing? So he seems to be saying that it's righteous people. But if it's about if 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 resuscitation of the dead is only is about reward and punishment, well then it's for everyone. Is that right? So why did he mention righteous people? Okay. If you have better clothes, maybe. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> maybe. Oh, that's that. That's what. That that that's. But, yeah. Okay. But why even mention it? You know, the question is clothing. So everyone comes in clothes. Fantastic. Uh, number one. Number two, I found another place in the Talmud that mentions that um, when they come, when, the, when they're reborn, or when they're re- revived, when they're resuscitated, when they're resurrected, whichever word you want to use, when they come back to life, are they going to die again or not? So the Talmud has a very long discussion, but it starts by saying that the tzaddikim, the righteous people that the Emmanuel will resuscitate, they won't die. One thing I mentioned is righteous people. So maybe it means only the righteous people that are resuscitated won't die. That's not, it's not clear. But once again, it's, it's the idea of why would we mention the righteous? Okay, so that's a, that's, a, that's a thought that we'll put on the side. Another thing we put on the side, we have like a, our, our side satchel is getting full of things to hold on. I still told you guys to hold on to the thought of, of the water and, the, uh, and the, the earth. Okay, but let's move on to another source here. Uh, this is from, I'll, I will try to tie it all together. I will do that. <laughs> We're waiting. Uh, but what do we see? So what's the imagery that we got? We got you drop, a, you drop a kernel of wheat into the ground, and it emerges as, a, as, a fruit, uh, as fruits of earth, so to speak. Right? It, uh, and it, it, that's clothed. But the imagery is the idea of planting a seed. It's as if, uh, it's as if we're planting a seed, and then something else emerges. It means, yes, it's the same kind of thing, but it's developed, right? It's, it's, it's sprouted. It's something different than what goes in. <coughs> Find as follows. Listen to this, guys. Uh, this is the Talmud anal- analyzes a verse in the book of Proverbs. It says as follows. The verse says, 
the grave and the narrow part of the womb. So it makes a comparison between a grave and a narrow part of the womb. Land unsated with water and fire, with water and fire that never says enough. Seems like a very cryptic verse. It says, uh, grave and narrow part of the womb. What do those things have to do with each other? And land unsated with water and fire that never says enough. Uh, so the Talmud asks, what does a grave have to do with a womb or the narrow part of the womb? What do they possibly do with each other? They seem to be entirely different. Talmud says, the narrow part of the womb, something goes in and something emerges. So to the grave, something goes in and something else emerges. That's the, that's the resuscitation of the dead. The, the body goes in, it's going to come out. That's what it says. It's locked. So you're meaning the body and the soul? And in the grave, something emerges, the body... Well, the body's going to come out again. That's right. The soul. I'm sorry? So that in a grave... No, it just... No, well, what it means is, is that something goes in, the body goes in, and it's going to come back out again. Okay? Now like this. Once again, we find the idea... What's the comparison? Right? The comparison is to the womb. Something goes in, the seed goes in, and something comes out. What goes in and what comes out? What goes in is a seed. What comes out is something developed, something sprouted, something entirely different. Yes, it's at the core, it's the same DNA, so to speak. But it's different. It's, it's the full-blown manifestation of, of the potential of the seed. Just like when you drop a seed into the ground and something entirely new emerges, like a tree or something like that. What's the idea of something going in, something, but the thing goes in and comes out is not, not, not exactly the same thing. So to me, this was a mind-blowing discovery where when we do come back, or at least when the tzaddikim come back, it's, it's not just a convenient way of, marry, of marrying a body and a soul. It's not just, oh, let's conveniently put the body and soul together so we can judge them. There's an entirely new idea where it is a manifestation, it is a development of potential. Some potential goes in, and something where the full manifestation of that potential emerges. So essentially what I discovered is that there's really two different kinds of resuscitation of the dead. One of them for everyone, and that's about judgment, and then one of them just for the righteous. And that is where it's something entirely new that emerges, where as if the potential, as if, there, as if death is being like a gestation, where the, the, the true potential of what this individual was comes out into fruition with the reviving. And that's only for the righteous. That's only for the people that are deserving of that. Yes, yes. But it's a purification process, right? Well, oh, it's to the, to the soul or the body? Maybe? I don't know. I, to me, like, the, the, the it's... it's there's an idea here. I don't know exactly how to nail it down to what exactly it means, but it's an idea of development and something, something akin to a seed goes in and something akin to a, a plant or a fruit or a baby comes out, something new. What this means is, I, I don't know, I don't know if we, you know. So what if you're righteous six days of the week, but the seventh maybe not so much? I don't know. righteous. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 um, I want to know. I mean, you've got this um, this idea that the righteous is going to be the ones that, that come back in, in complete form. Who defines how righteous do you got to be, in other words? 
it's it's not uh, you know it's it, this is in the hands of the Almighty like this is not something that we make decisions on you know but whether you're righteous righteous enough right thank you I, I, I don't know uh, we'll get to a little bit of, of how of what happens you know with these two with these two resurrections and 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 what happens and how with the idea of Allah which is the next thing we want to talk about do we only resurrect one time or is this Uh, no, we're not, this is not reincarnation. Reincarnation is something else. Reincarnation is where the body dies and it gets the soul gets swapped into another body in this world. This is an entirely different world after the 6,000 years is done, okay. moved on to another phase okay. where everyone, everyone, all humans, they get back uh, body and soul. They get judged. That could be very temporary. That's not a rebirth of something entirely new. That's not what we're talking about. That's, that's, only, that's reserved for the righteous. The idea of something, a seed going to the ground, something else entirely emerging, right? Uh, maybe those people won't die. That's, a, that's something entirely different. That's, all, that's reserved for the righteous. There's a question there, yes. So, I'll get to you in a second. Sorry. Um, in the way of God, they're talking about reincarnation these times. talking about um, Abraham and Yeah, this is a good question. These are good, there's a lot of questions that once you talk, I, I specifically on the onset said I don't want to talk about reincarnation because I have, it's very hard to find uh, classic sources about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also, it's a, it's a, it's a hop on topic in Jewish philosophy. I want to deal with things that are found in the Talmud, things that are substantiated by Maimonides. <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot of questions like, well, which body do you get? If there's multiple bodies, well, what about spouses? Right. These, these are all good questions, and I have, I have answers, actually. Um, I have theories, at least. Uh, once you ask the question, I I think with regards to like which body, I think it's either the first one, which is the original one. Everything else is just you know, I guess bodies that you kind of use for their purpose. Maybe it's the last one that's one that completed. Maybe it's a composite. Maybe it doesn't matter because a body is a body is a body. Those are my four potential answers to that question. Right. So, but it, it's it's reincarnation. I don't want to talk about reincarnation because I I don't think that that's that really deals with you know the things that are are of the other world it's more like in this world so you have a body with a mission you don't fulfill your mission you come back again right lather rinse repeat Vitaly yeah I'm just wondering are there any thoughts in the classical sources for practical consideration so now you're righteous you sprung up fully closed what's tomorrow do you get your bank account back do you get some plot yeah okay so 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 what what emerges so 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 what emerges? So that, that, that's what I wanted to... So now we went back to the resurrection idea, right? Yes, yes, we, yes. We're going back to that. That's right. Okay. So, so there's, I think there's the resurrection for everyone, everyone, no matter how, how righteous, how, how, how wicked, in order to have judgment, in order to close your place, in order to have closure, so to speak, on the human, we have to have an evaluation. Evaluation is only possible body and soul. Reward and punishment is only possible body and soul, uh, or at least, yeah. Let's... let's, let's I'm going to amend that a little bit slightly, but it's because it's the human, and then their 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 issue is done. There's this higher level of 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 resurrection that is where the body that emerges is is different than the body that went in. Now, if you guys remember, we talked about that uh, uh, tchias amazing resurrection 
is different than uh, than the body that we have today. The body of today is made with with water, and the body that we made uh, that was that, that is made later is made with earth. Now, who else do we know whose body was made out of earth? Adam. 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 <laughs> Did you say Gollum? Is that what you said? <laughs> Adam. Now, which Adam? We told me something. There's, there's Adam. There's Adam during that first week, and then there's a regular Adam. It's the Adam of that first week. Now, in Jewish philosophy, in Jewish philosophy, when we talk about Adam, you always have Adam before the sin and Adam after the sin. It's because it's two different humans, not just two different realities, and two entirely different descriptions of what a human is. The original Adam, his modality was soul dominating body, as if the exact opposite of what we are today. We, today, as humans, right, as humans post facto, we are a body where that body is the host, the body is the dominant. We have the soul in us. We have like a, a, a speck of a soul in us. Now, the soul is very powerful. The soul is eternal. But in our view, in our life, in our circumstances, in our consciousness, the soul is very, 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 very insignificant compared to our body. Adam was the exact opposite. Yes, he had a body. He had a body. But his body was not significant to him at all. It was the soul was entirely dominant. The body was there. That's Adam, and Adam's body is formed from the earth to the ground. We're told that when we are resurrected, the tzaddikim, the righteous people resurrected, they're resurrected and they're formed with earth. What we're hinted to over here is the fact that this reality that's going to exist with the tzaddikim, with the righteous, after the resurrected, when something new sprouts, what, what's this new thing that sprouts? Right? What's this reality? It's in something entirely different. We're in the soul is in total control, total dominion. The body is just there. It's just like a vessel that holds the soul. Right? It, it's just there, but it's not significant at all. Perhaps we could say like this. The sea that goes into the ground, the investment, so to speak. What's the investment? The investment is the life that someone lived. The behavior that someone had, the priorities, the accomplishments, the deeds, the, the actions, the Torah, the mitzvah that, some, that someone did, that's what goes into the ground. What are all those things? Those are all actions of soul. Those are actions of soul on one end, empowering the soul, like we mentioned earlier, tikkun olam on our empowering our soul, and also saying no to the body, withholding from the body, right? limiting, mitigating, right? weakening the body. That is what goes into the ground. That's the seed. And thus, what emerges? That reality. When someone places the, body, the soul, the agenda of the soul, in priority before the body, right, they're investing in their future. Because what emerges is the reality. To the degree in which someone was able to make a primary, the soul's agenda in this world, that is the degree in which their soul is going to be dominant when it emerges. Thus, it is something new, and it's an investment. It's like a seed, so to speak. It's the core of what you invested in your life goes into the ground, and that's what, and what emerges is something entirely different, but it's the development of that idea. And what does that look like? It's an entirely different paradigm. It's as if you're riding on top of the donkey, so to speak. Right? Suddenly, the soul is in control, and the body is just there. You know? But that's only for tzaddikim, only, tzaddikim, only for the righteous people, only they who invest their time in that, only they have that reality. If someone does not invest in time, then all what? Well, they'll they'll come back, yes, but they'll come back for perfunctory reasons only, because you need you need to be judged. 
you know, once you're judged, that's it. You you know, you you didn't if you didn't invest in that kind of life, well, then you don't get you don't get those kind of uh, repercussions or those kind of those, those benefits. Those benefits are like you said, it's an investment. It's a seed you put into the ground. Something else is going to emerge, and that the, 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 and the seed is at the core of the seed. It is uh, the same DNA of the result, but it's it's something that has to sprout, so to speak. If you don't have the seed, you don't have the result. If you don't have the core, at least the element of what uh, of the lifestyle, of the behavior, of the attitude, of the priorities, of the agenda, of the soul being dominant. If you don't have the Torah, if you're not following the the Torah, well, then what could what what do you expect to emerge? Whatever you put in, that's what emerges. There's a question there. So I have in my notes here, and Betty will uh, attest to it, that I, I, I mentioned that as well. That Moses <laughs> Moses is a great manifestation of, of yes. this idea where right. Moses created this new human, so to speak, where the roles are reversed. He created it in this world. You know, He was the one who was able to have a total realization of this, of this reality in this world. He didn't need to be reborn and have put a seed into the ground and have that emerge. Which maybe there was also a physical difference of some sort, whether they grow or you know, maybe you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was in the prayer after the candle lighting service mm-hmm. from my Sidor, he talks about the uh, may uh, the glow of our faces never be dimmed. Mm-hmm. Show us the glow of your face, Hashem, and mm-hmm. we'll be saved. Mm-hmm. That's the same kind of thing that we're asking. Uh, and then also, the prayer for the Talit talks about, uh, as you know, you wrap it, that you're wrapped in the mitzvot, and that may you inherit a beautiful Talit in the world to come. And I heard a teaching on that, that you can either have a beautiful Talit or you can have a, one with a bunch of holes in it because it's woven and made up of all of the mitzvot that you do in your life. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wanted to share one more point before we move on to the next the next phase here. Um, just a, a tool, I think, um, I guess a textual reference to what we, we, we said here. The Talmud, by the way, the Talmud is very, very clipped, very precise wordings for what it says here. And I, I studied this at great length, this particular element of, of the Talmud. And to me, it was always bizarre how it's structured. It talks about Chesim and it mentions so many different kind of imagery and scenarios and kind of uh, descriptions of what this is like. But according to this, like when, when, the, when, when the Talmud is talking about uh, Antoninus and Rebbe talking about how you get judgment, so he describes a certain form of resurrection. That's a resurrection that's universal. Universal resurrection. And then it says as follows. So the words that it uses is like this. It says... Uh, so you have the, the king who has the two, the two guards, and one's lame, and one's blind, and he judges them as one. So too, it says, the Almighty takes a soul, throws it into the body, and judges the human as one. So to me, it was very interesting. What paradigm do we have over here? 
it takes a soul and throws it into a body. Essentially, for everyone, the universal resurrection, which is just for judgment, which is not for the righteous, that is, you take a soul and throw it into a body. It's no different than the reality we have today. The body is still dominant. It's not changing anything. There's nothing new emerging here. It's not this new reality where the soul is in control and the body is just there because it needs to be there to hold it all together, so to speak. You need the soul and throw it into the body. Just like we have a soul now, throw an entire body. It's, it's no different. As opposed to what actually happens later. Well, no, it's a body that's formed out of earth, like, like, like Adam, and it's, you know, and it's, 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 it's a reality wherein, uh, uh, for the righteous, what they planted, that's what they reap. The, the, the relationship that they have with their soul, uh, the soul and their body, the investment that they put in, that emerges in its full fruition uh, 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 at and maybe they won't die. You know? And this is, bleeds, I think it kind of leads in very nicely into Olam Haba. So Olam Haba means the next world. Olam Haba is the, is the location of reward and punishment. Uh, and, ha- and the Talmud always talks about having a portion of the world to come, meriting to have a share in the world to come, a portion or a share or a piece of the world to come. Now, till yesterday, I didn't really understand the interrelationship between Tchias Amesim, reviving the dead, and Olam Haba. Because the Talmud says, or the Mishnah says actually, someone who says, and I mentioned this earlier, someone who says that there's no Tchias Amesim, there's no resuscitation of the dead, there's no biblical source for it, has no portion of the world to come. If you reject the biblicity, which is the word I made up, the biblicity <laughs> of resurrection, you have no portion of the world to come. Why not? Why not? Because the Talmud says, first, first line of the Talmud, if he rejects Tchias Mason, if you reject resuscitation, you don't, you don't have no part in, res- in, resuscita- in resuscitation, in resurrection. Right? Tit for tat. What you do, that's what you get. If you say this doesn't exist, okay, it doesn't exist for you. Fantastic. But to me, it was like, wait a minute. <clears throat> we have two concepts here. We have resuscitation of the dead. We have Alam Abba, right? We have uh, dead coming back to life, and we have the world to come. What, why are we saying that they're, that, that, they're, that they're interrelated? That if you say, I don't want it, I, I don't believe in it, you got no part of it. Why? <clears throat> they're separate things. One is dead people come to life. They get judged. And one thing is reward for the righteous. It turns out now it makes a lot of sense. Because... When it means reviving the dead, it means an entirely new reality emerging, right? A, a changing of the guards, right? It's, it's, it's a swapping of roles. The body and the soul are now changing. We're going back to Adam, Adam Priestin, right? We're being formed out of earth. It's not the same thing. It's, we're being formed like Adam where the soul is dominant, the body is just there you know, to hold it together. That is the, the reality of a human in Olam Abba, in the world to come. Thus, if you get revived, you know, just like everyone else, your, the soul is thrown into your body and you get judged as one, that's not necessarily an indication of Allah Mabah. That doesn't mean you have a portion of what to come. That just means it's, that's how you have to be judged because that's, that's, that's who sinned, that's who gets judged. <clears throat> that's it. All right. For the tzaddikim, the, 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 the resuscitation that we're talking about over here, for the tzaddikim, for the righteous, that is an entirely different thing. We're a lama where it's, it's an entirely different world. It's, 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 an, it's almost an opposite world, where everything is just spiritual and the body is just there. You know? But in fact, the Talmud even says uh, that you know, there's no eating, there's no sleeping, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no sex, uh, there's, no, there's no drinking. The body doesn't even need to have its agenda fulfilled. Just like I would say, uh, dare I say, 
that if someone doesn't nourish their soul, well, they'll still live in this world. Right? If you totally neglect your soul, will you live? Will you die? Uh, <clears throat> cause of death? Lack of engagement to the soul? No. <laughs> you know, you don't need it, so to speak, to be alive in this world. Because this is the world of the bodies. Thus, if your body's alive, you're alive. If your body's not alive, then you're, not, you're dead. But if your soul's neglected, your soul's neglected. You know, but you're still, you might still live. In the world to come, it's the opposite. Thus, all you got to do is swap the body and the soul. Okay, so if your, your soul has to be taken care of, if your body's neglected, you don't eat, you don't sleep, you don't, all those bodily activities, those don't need to be because those are, 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 are insignificant compared to the soul. You don't need to eat, you don't need to drink, those things are, you have a body, yes, but its role is severely downplayed. Right? It's not what dominates the soul. So the question is like, what do you do? You get your bank account? Or you get, those things are not, are not relevant, like anything that's related to the body is not relevant in, the, in this next world because everything is reversed. It's all about the soul and the body is just there. You can't even realize that you have it. Remember, Adam, Adam was walking around and he's naked. He didn't notice until after he sinned, right? Because the body was, was, was nothing. He didn't, it wasn't something that was part of his purview. It, was, it, it, was, it wasn't important to him. It wasn't, and then he sinned and suddenly the, the roles were reversed and the body is important. Oh, I'm naked. What's going on here? He didn't notice until now. Why didn't he notice until now? Because just like you don't notice if your soul is missing something, or your, you, you, the palpitations of your soul are not present to us. We don't know. We're not aware of it. But what do you mean? You have a soul. How can, how can you possibly? Because it's not the, 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 the status vis-a-vis your body is, 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 not, is not that important. In the world to come, it's the opposite. So to answer all the questions here, Lama Ba is the world of the souls, where souls have the role that our bodies have today. Our hope is that we could be part of the righteous people that are not just for convenience sake resuscitated to just be put have a soul back in our body to be judged and then and then and, and that's it. Rather our resuscitation is the one of the righteous where our soul is an entirely uh, dominant reality in our lives. And as consolation we find uh, the 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 mission starts off by saying call Yisrael all of Israel is a portion of the world to come. If you're Jewish, you should know you have a portion. There's some portion of Alam Abba that you'll have. Importantly, even Gentiles have to have a portion of the world to come. A Gentile who puts their soul's responsibilities and agenda at a high value, they invest in their soul. Well, they too, when they emerge, their soul will have its own its own importance. You know, and they'll have Alam Abba. You don't have to be Jewish to have Alam Abba. Which is which is different, uh, which is one of the differences that, that our religion has over the other religions. You don't have to be Jewish to have ultimate uh, ultimate reward. Uh, but all of Jew, all of Israel has it. Now, why, now, the question is why? Like, why would all why would all Jews just have it? If if Alam Abba, and when we say Alam Abba, we're talking about the 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 world that only people who are reborn in this new format with the soul as the dominant host and the body just there. Only those people partake in that world. If you don't have that, you don't partake in that world. Why would all Jews have a portion of the world to come? Two answers that I have. Maybe there's more answers. Uh, We know that Abraham, we mentioned this already earlier, Abraham is the founding father of Tikkun Olam. Founding father of the mission of Humanity, founding father of the Jewish people. Uh, and being part of the Abrahamic tribe, being part of the mission, being part of the team, being part of the 
efforts to fulfill Abraham's mission, just by being biologically part of the, this, this unit, like we said, the Jewish people are a unit, we have a portion of the world to come. Why? Because we are, through our existence, even if we do nothing, through our existence, we are part of the team that's working towards achieving this end. Interestingly, we know that a child gets a circumcision at day eight of their lives. And what's the blessing that we say? Right? Blessed are you, Hashem. To enter him into the covenant of Abraham. A child from day one almost is someone who's saying, you're Jewish, you're part of the team, you're part of the Abrahamic uh, fraternity, you're part of the mission of Tikkun Olam. Cool idea here. Maimonides writes that there's some, some Jews who could lose their portion of what to come. Right? And, he gives, and he gives an entire list of all the greatest miscreants, uh, severe offenders, uh, people that do the most severe sins, murderers and rapists and whatnot. And at the end he says, someone who pulls their foreskin, who reverses their, their circumcision. Now, nowhere does it say that it's prohibited to have to pull your foreskin. It's not one of the it's not, it's not one of the sins of the Torah. The question is why why is that sin included? Like why like why is that deed why does that disqualify someone from having a portion of the world to come? The answer is like this, guys. Listen, you're Jewish. You got a portion of the world to come. Why do you, why do you have a portion of the world to come? Because you're part of a team. That team is symbolized by our circumcision. If someone says, "Oh, I don't want to be part of this. I want to undo this." I want to kind of disassociate myself from the Jewish people. I want to opt out. Oh, okay, so then you're not judged as one of the Jews. You want to be, you want to be on your own? You want to say, I'm not part of the team? Okay, then you, only your merit can bring you into the world to come. Well, then you probably have no merit. Let's let, you have, on, on your own accord, who said the other portion of the world to come? Thus, uh, the symbolism of someone saying, I don't want to be part of the Jewish people. Well, okay, you don't want to be part of the Jewish people? Fine, you don't have to be part of the Jewish people, but then you're not part of the mission, you're not part of the team, and you're not guaranteed a, 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 a slot in the world to come. You lose what? Extra credit. Yeah, well, okay. yes. You get what you want. You didn't yeah. want to be a part of it, so you're not. So, so, so Christianity is the same thing. What? If a Jew... Idolatry? Yeah, yeah. Well, if someone, yeah, if someone opts out, right. Opts out. But can you fix that? Oh, yeah, of course. Every second that you're alive, you can always repent, you can always do tshuva. Always, every second. It's, uh, it's, it's never too late. Unless you're dead, it's never too late. Like, unless, you're, unless that seed is thrown to the ground, mm-hmm. right? Once, till the seed is thrown to the ground, you have an option to change what that seed is. Right? Once it's in the ground, well, then it's too late. You're just saying, so if somebody is born to Judaism and is Jewish, then that person, say, gets older and says, gee, this doesn't make sense, I've been doing Judaism. So then perhaps the person becomes an atheist or agnostic or maybe picks up, oh, I'm going to be a Muslim. I'm making this up. I don't know. Which I think that's what you're saying, right? Well, so no. Well, I, I, all I'm saying is the Ramam says that if someone pulls their foreskin and undoes their circumcision, then they're opting out. Uh, would that extend to people that maybe make other uh, choices to disassociate themselves from the Jewish people? Maybe. So when I but, I, but I'm just saying, I'm trying to explain what the Ramam says, what Maimonides says, uh, just to maybe understand what, what could possibly be the meaning behind this particular activity uh, invalidating someone's or disqualifying someone's uh, entrance into the world to come. But it's possible that other things might do that as well. That's a huge thing. Oh, maybe. Maybe. The Bible says maybe. And again, Hashem is the final judge. Yes, of yeah. course. 
Now, so that's one reason why the Jewish people would automatically be granted a golden ticket. Another reason, um, the Rambam, again the Rambam, at the end of, uh, of a different book, uh, he talks about the Mishnah that said as follows, says, the Almighty wanted to benefit the Jewish people, therefore he increased them Torah and mitzvahs. The Almighty loves us, he wants to do good for us, therefore he gave us lots of mitzvahs, lots of restrictions, lots of commandments. Now, if the Almighty really loved us, maybe you would say, well, why so many? <laughs> I'll go easy on them. So the Ram asked the question, well, what does this mean that the Almighty loves us and he gives us so many mitzvahs, so many restrictions and commandments? Every restriction is a restriction, and every commandment is more responsibilities. Why is that an act of love? So the Ram says like this, is when someone does a mitzvah perfectly, any mitzvah that may be, if you do it perfectly, you're guaranteed a slot in the world to come. Why? Doing a mitzvah perfectly is an act of a soul. And soul priority over the body. That's what it is. Thus, essentially, any mitzvah that you do perfectly, you are creating a seed that's going to grow into the ground that's going to emerge with some degree, some element of soul being in control and body being, body being less, 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 less important. Thus, they might give us so many mitzvahs. Because it's with so many mitzvahs, it's almost impossible to go through a life without doing at least one of them perfectly. And once you do that, you're guaranteed a, a slot in the world to come, which, which, which is very interesting, you know. And thus, as Jews, we have all the portion of the world to come. We all have so many mitzvahs. And therefore, we all have so many opportunities to do that one thing that's going to grant us this golden ticket, uh, uh, this, uh, this reality that when we emerge, we have a portion of the world to come. Now, what is Lama Ba? And we said it's, it's a place of reward and punishment. It's the ultimate reward. We talked about the ultimate reward. When God does things, he does it perfectly. Thus, if God's going to give us reward, it's going to be a perfect reward. Uh, the Mishnah says in, in, in the book of, of the chapters of the Fathers, it says, uh, one second of repentance and good deeds in this world is greater than the entire world to come. And one second of pleasure and bliss in the world to come is greater than all of this world. The question is, which one's greater? Is this world greater or the next world greater? The answer is that for what the purpose of this world is, which is action, activity, living in this reality where the body is dominant and overcoming that, empowering the soul, well, one second of opportunity in this world is greater than all the opportunity in the next world. Once you're in the next world, you have no, no more opportunity. Once you're dead, your time's up. However, with regards to reward, with regards to actually uh, uh, receiving the reward for our activities, well, that's what next world's all about. Thus, one second in the world to come is equal to all the pleasures in this world. If you were to take all the pleasures in this world and pile them on with the ice cream and <laughs> relationships and, uh, and fancy cars and fancy houses and lots of money, Put, pile it all together, and you're able to uh, uh, just uh, amass and coalesce all the bunch of the world together in one, in one pill. <laughs> right? You're just able to do all of that. Right? That, wouldn't, uh, that wouldn't equal a, a second in the world. That's greater. It's an entirely different paradigm. No. It's, the, it, it's the world of reward, and, and it's, it's spiritual reward. Remember, it, it's, it's spiritual-centered, and everything with, with spiritual is heightened. It's much greater. And even, I would say, Maimonides writes this, even the pleasures that we have in this world that are more spiritual are greater, infinitely greater than the physical pleasures. For example, like the pleasure of having, uh, of having fulfilled a legacy or living for a purpose. Those are soulful pleasures. And those are so much more uh, intense, so much more uh, long-lasting than, than the pleasures of the physical, eating an ice cream, you eat it, it's done, Right? We have a hint of this idea. That hint of idea of spiritual pleasures in this world kind of opens up the door to what, what, what is going to be in the world to come uh, and just, just gives us a little, a little insight into that. 
But that's what it is. And, and, and Ram Maimonides tells us, listen, we really cannot understand it. Just like a, a deaf person cannot be understand what sound is, a blind person cannot be described color, so too, as humans and as individuals with a body-centric approach to life, where our soul is, 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 is insignificant compared to our body, at least in, that's how we feel, it's hard for us to understand how what it's like to be if the opposite. You know, is, is true. It's it's impossible. You try explain, try to explain uh, uh, color to a blind person. You know, you can't do it. You can't do it. So too, you won't be able to explain what the that the world to come and the pleasure of the world to come are in in compared to the insignificant pleasures uh, of this world. You know, and I, you know, we mentioned before. We'll say it again. Maimonides, uh, my, Moses described it as his face is as bright as the sun. And we also. Uh, a long while ago, but we talked about Olam Haba, the world to come, is compared to the sun. You know, just like the sun is beyond our perspective. We, we, we can look at it, but we really can't look at it. Right? It's beyond us. You know, it's something that, it's, yes, it's in this world, but it's a little bit like the next world where it's just totally beyond. It's an entirely new reality. It's, a re- reality because, it's an entirely new reality because our, who we are as, as, as humans is different. Our soul is, it, it, our soul is who we are, and our body is just there, you know? And that's something we can't even imagine because it's so the entire diametrically opposed to what we are today. That's what it is, and that's, that's the locale of war and punishment, and it's spiritual war and punishment. I want to just finish off by saying that there's other things to this. There's this, the long Shabbos with the idea of slaughtering the Yetzirah. We have the idea of Sadiqim floating like birds. We have the idea of the destroyed world. There's other ideas to that, but uh, at the core of what this world is and how it ends, it's the 6,000 years, 2,000, 2,000, 2,000, of reaching to Kodolam as individuals, as 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 a as humanity. Uh, number one, Messiah is universal acceptance of that. There's the two elements of reviving the dead, one for everyone, just as a convenient way to have reward and punishment. One for the tzaddikim, whereas uh, uh, which is the the seed that you plant in your life is going to come out into fruition uh, afterwards, and hopefully you look more like Adam, where the body and the soul uh, have an entirely new relationship, an interrelationship than they have today. And that is the that is the the reality in which you're able to be uh, to receive the ultimate warden punishment for your actions, thus the completion fulfillment of the world's purpose. I apologize for going over time, uh, but is there any questions? Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. Whoa! I, I didn't explain that at all. I just said that there is this thing that I'm, that I'm not going to talk about. Oh well. I, I, I you go ahead. My image of, well, this is my image. I may be right, I may be wrong, but just let me know. Is that you have study kim floating like birds, meaning that not like you said earlier, not everybody's a study. Nobody is a, not everybody is a chassid, a study. So if they're floating like birds, I get the visual image that they're coming to us. No, I, I I didn't give you the entire the entire context. Okay, I, just, I just said I threw it out there that there's more to talk about. There's another question I'm here. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> you had mentioned and maybe you explained it. I didn't catch it. But if you ignored your soul, and then you finally go to judgment, the soul and the body is together for the judgment purpose only. Yes. Okay, and the the soul and body is wiped out, or just the well, yeah, they're done. They you know they're the done. They have no. Yes, 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 yes. The soul, and very tragically, but the soul can, even though the soul, well, it's not a part of Hashem. Do you know what you said? Yeah, no, no, it's not a part of Hashem. That's a Isn't slight, that slight mistake. It's a spark. It's a spiritual spark. It's not a part of Hashem. Remember, we can't have, Hashem doesn't have any parts, right? 
it's something which is similar to Hashem. It's akin to Hashem, but it's not. A, it's, not it's not actual. Uh, just just semantics. Yeah, but that's right, the idea. Sure. Uh, but yes, and that that is the idea of, of kares. Kares means cut off. It's the worst punishment you can get. Where even soul gets uh, gets forgotten. Lamaba. It's terrible. Uh, but our hope is that we're one of the righteous people that, uh, as Jews, you know, we, we, we have a head start, but that we are going to have some measure of this reality uh, in our future. Is that um, world to come on the earth? Because we have the bodies. Is it well uh, good question. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Lots of good questions. Oh, thank you, everyone. This thank was fantastic. And we will look forward to seeing you everyone next week. I, I hopefully it won't go as overtime as it did today. <laughs> <laughs>